Welcome to Speaking Duck Podcast. This is your host, Alex Ross. In this episode, we sit down with John Sinopoli, one of the proclaimed kings of the East, as he has run three successful restaurants on Queen East here in Toronto. Unfortunately, this episode was previously recorded, and one of those restaurants is now closing. That's Table 17, which we've talked about with previous guests like Joel McCharles. We've also talked about Ascari Enoteca and High Low Bar, the other two establishments, John and his partner Eric Joyle, who will also try to get on this podcast. They are, you know, the proclaimed Queen East Kings, and they are basically some of the biggest hitters when it comes to Italian food in the city. I've uh, only ever been to Ascari Enoteca, I think, as... Um, Table 17 closes, there's going to be a lot of, you know, interest, and I'm hoping to get in there, and hopefully by that time, Eric will then be able to come and join us here on the podcast. John is a super cool dude. I think everybody has the same opinion about John. He's just totally interesting, the nicest guy to talk to. We actually play a game in this episode where I try to stump him on some cured meats, and we have a really good time. And I recently went to Ascari Enoteca, and it's fantastic. I'm not even that big of an Italian food fan, but just the way they are so inventive with their cooking and their fats and their taste profiles and even just the little simple depths of flavor, you really have to go check that out. And Hilo Bar, this is John Sinopoli on Speaking Duck Podcast. John Sinopoli of... Splendido Craft and currently Table 17 and Riverside and that's in Toronto's East End. I just want to welcome John. It's a big pleasure of ours to have you today. It's wonderful to be here. John, we're going to get right into it. You have a lengthy resume for a young looking guy in the industry. Thank you very much for the compliment. <laughs> Tell us about your start in Toronto and how you bounced around to New York and how you're now rocking three or two restaurants and a bar in the East End, which as a West End snob, I'm going to have to get over there. The only reason I usually am in the East End is for a, a, an easy no-frill steak at Tulip. But, uh, which I love. Which oh, I love. yeah. It's the, it's the easiest, uh, most convenient place in the East End to get a steak. But please, before I promote Tulip, which I almost do every episode, John, talk to us a little bit about yourself and just about your love for food. And we'll start really simple and we'll go through all the places you've been and from. Sure. Well, it, it started in university just like cooking for and with roommates and uh, decided to work nights and weekends in restaurants in Montreal and really volunteering, not working. And then uh, worked at a couple places in Toronto right after that and decided that uh, at the time, in the late 90s, cooking school around here wasn't as, uh, I would say, developed as it is now. So I decided to go down to the States, make use of my American passport, and uh, really go to school somewhere where I could get my foot in the door somewhere great as fast as possible. Yeah, I hear that a lot today. Um, I mean, Toronto's known for George Brown for its culinary school. And Humber College, and there's a couple private places that we hire kids out of liaison college. And they're just they're much better now than they were 15, 20 years ago. Really? Some of these private restaurant um, schools or, or private um, it's all the culinary pers- It's schools. all the personality of the student and what they can get out of it. They, they provide a base from which these kids can springboard off of, hopefully. Uh 
I don't want to get into my what I think about cooking schools at the time. That's a whole other program. But I, I think that uh, we're seeing some better product out of them for sure. Who was leading the industry at the time that inspired you in the 90s to pursue this? Well, when I left, Susier had opened his eponymous restaurant. And um, uh, when I left for New, for New York, uh, and there was a few g- really good players. Obviously, Oliver and Bonaccini were growing their empire. And, you know, Centro was in full swing and North 44. Those were, those were fantastic places. Um, uh, but the pool was a lot smaller, obviously, than it is today. Everyone knows about the massive expansion of the business in Toronto in the past 10 to 15 years. Um, and I just wanted to see something else. I mean, I love traveling. I had just come back from a year in Japan and I, I had the bug and I wanted to see what was out there. So that's interesting because we're going to get to that, the fact that you worked in the St. Lawrence markets is a Yeah. I, I was thinking to myself, where, where does he run off for a year in Japan? Where does that fit in and everything? It, it fit in. I mean, I, uh, it, in a couple of ways. So, um, I needed to make money to pay for cooking school, which, uh, the cooking school I went to was very expensive, uh, compared to, in fact, I think the tuition there for six months was more than the combined tuition of my four years at McGill, which is, if you think about it, totally insane. Um, and I, and I, at McGill, I studied philosophy and religious studies in particular, I studied, uh, ancient Buddhist philosophy and Zen Buddhism. So going to Japan was a big dream of mine to also, you know, really experience the culture and investigate, you know, religion, that particular, uh, religion in uh, detail, which I, I did on a lot of weekends and stuff. I I took very very small one car trains up the mountains to temples and and honestly, I mean the experience uh, like in terms of educationally was amazing. But what blew me away was the food experience at these places. The food experience was unlike anything at these else. places of worship oh it would they were incredible you'd spend a couple nights doing like meditation um basically like uh, meditation uh clinics kind of in like a buddhist temple in the middle of the mountains and you have to apply to go they don't like foreigners going usually Do you have to pay uh i think it was a small fee yeah like like just to cover costs and but i had i'd have to have my students like vouch for me that yeah he speaks like four words of japanese he's gonna like be okay like you're gonna and then you'd sit, and then the meals they would give you, though, were, like, unbelievable. Like, completely foraged from... I mean, this was before Noma, anyone knew what this was. You know, all the foraged food. But, I mean, they've been doing this for thousands of years there. I mean, at least 1,200, the one temple I was at. And they're foraging everything from around. It's totally vegetarian, vegan, Buddhist cuisine. And the richness of the flavors and the textures and the, the uniqueness of ingredients and just how pristine everything was. It was, it was really like life altering for me. So let's start from the beginning. You had your training at a French culinary school. Mm-hmm. Was that in? Yeah, th- that was in New York. That so, was in New York. Yeah, that was the French culinary Institute. That was in New York. That yeah. was post my trip to Japan. Right? Okay. Oh, really? Yeah. Oh, so okay. I graduated university, spent a year, like spent a year, uh, cooking in Toronto, spent a year in Japan and then, Came back and moved to New York, basically. Went to university. Yeah. Which university? McGill. 
you decided to be a chef while doing my degree while doing your degree while cooking for my roommates I, i'm like this is what i want this awesome. is what i want to do amazing what was your like dish of choice back then oh of whatever of I, I made lots of risottos i mean i mean mostly that's amazing. italian i mean that's amazing yeah but it's nothing we grew up with that i mean, I mean you did as yeah. an italian yeah, your the, mom no, or your totally the reason why we, i cooked was because we were like we're not gonna live like these other heathens here in university craft dinner on the couch watching tv you took the words right Where out of my mouth we will eat dinner at a table together every night like like normal human beings like we grew up and and it was really important for us to have that communal experience and you know for us it was normal for every all the other university students around us they're like you guys you're crazy you eat dinner together like we're like four nights a week i my classes were in the afternoon, I'd come home, I'd make dinner, my roommates come back from the library, they did the dishes, got up in the morning, and we shared everything. We shared all the groceries and everything. And you were already versed in the Montreal markets. Yeah, we'd go up to Jean Talon Market and pick stuff up. We, I mean, you know, we were university students. We'd make trips to, like, Costco or whatever to buy, sure. like, 1800 boxes of cereal and all that, too. But it was really... We cooked real good food and like my parents or my roommate's parents would come up with a cooler full of like frozen meats they got from the butcher that our farmer would deliver and oh, so and, and we'd throw them in the freezer and make, you know, veal cutlets or roast or whatever and my, I have a look of shock on my face. We, I was 19, 20 years old. That's how we would eat. That's how we grew up and we're like, why should it change? Are you because all Italian? Yes. All your roommates were Italian? Uh, yeah, we had one roommate from Costa Rica, but he bought he, in. Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah. I mean, how could he not so, buy in at that point? Yeah, I mean, and that's also why we lived together. We had comp- one was a guy, buddy of mine from high school, and the other was someone I met at residence. And Perfect. We just saw the the synergy immediately. Well, that's lucky. I and mean, they're still brothers to me, these people. They're and like, you still talk to these people. Oh, my God, yeah. They, right. they claim they claim credit for my career. <laughs> are, I bet they do. I bet they do every time and they come to the restaurant. And, and right? rightfully so, yeah. Uh, that's interesting because, I mean, understandably, from your traditions, b- being raised like that, you carried it on. And I get that. As, not, as a non-Italian, I, I only can tell from a... I'm told, and I understand this. I mean, my background, our family is known for getting together regular, too. It's a Jewish tradition as well. Sure, But not like, we're not known for cooking. We're known for getting together. (laughs) We're not known for our cooking. Right, right. I mean, well, I mean, mean, I've been at plenty of awesome Jewish home meals. Comfort food is comfort food. Yeah, totally. Don't get me wrong. Yeah. But I mean, risottos, like actual stuff that takes minute and and stirring time and and stuff at 1920 with your roommates. That's amazing. It wasn't all altruistic. I was a mega procrastinator and this was a way for me not to be writing papers. Isn't it though? Isn't cooking the best way to procrastinate? And, you know, if I wasn't like alphabetizing my CD collection in my room to procrastinate, I was making some some like something good to eat. Isn't that amazing though? I could always tell when I'm procrastinating when my fridge is full <laughs> yeah. of food to eat for the rest of the week, and <laughs> I'm still right. going out. That's right. It's like I know how much That's great right. food I have out, but someone's like, "Let's go." That's right. I'm out. That's right. That's amazing. I, I love that. I, I really do really appreciate that. Uh, I mean, again, I never did the dorm experience. I went to Ryerson, but I lived in Toronto in right. the suburbs. Right. But still, like, I mean, even if yeah, I go we to my did one dinner, year of of residence, and we were uh, just totally appealed and really grossed out by yeah, what no we were meal eating. Cards. You didn't sounds like you didn't need no. A meal well, plan. the first year we did, we and were in residence. The first year, it was terrible, and then so we said, okay, we're getting an apartment, and we're we're gonna do this. Good right. for you. So that's and look how where it's taken you. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Totally agreed. I mean, uh, I mean, I, I that's not the only reason. I mean, I, I was raised with incredible food around the house and you know like everyone who knows me and knows us knows that my dad has an incredible farm basically in the backyard in in rexdale and uh 
you know, oh, wow. you're to, really to, raised to this, here. Oh yeah, to this day, we we like my parents host our the staff of our restaurants for a harvest dinner at my parents' house. We just did it a few weeks ago. Amazing. And the staff love it because my parents like to party and cook and drink. And so we, you know, we have everyone up. My mom makes a killer dinner, a few courses, and we, like, destroy everyone with food and wine. And and they get a sense of why we do what we do. What was served at the the harvest dinner? Oh, this year, always leek and potato soup because it's always time to harvest the leeks that time. So we do leek soup. And then my mom made uh, a manicotti, which was always amazing my grandmother's recipe and then um what i mean she roast what did, what was what did she do for the main course oh yeah we did a roast veal like a like a like a giallo which is like the eye of the round um with like bay leaves and red wine and then every single vegetable from the garden you can imagine like brussels sprout tops and kale and new zealand spinach and radicchio and i mean whatever is perfect in late october that's what we did and how many dishes from your menu are inspired by your family? A lot. I mean, it's hard to say. They take different forms. But for sure, there's a couple signatures that we do at Table 17 in Ascari and Oteca that are almost directly derived from the table at our family's home. Uh, one, for sure, is the polenta that we do at Table 17. Uh, we serve it kind of soft on a wood board. We pour it, and then we pour. I would pour the sauce on top table side. And that's inspired by the fact that my cousins and godparents would come over and we'd make polenta in a huge pot and throw it on one or two massive wood boards in the middle of the table. And then my mom would come with the huge pot of meat sauce and just like, like, you know, huge chunks of meat stewing and tomatoes all day long and just pour it on top. And everyone went at it like family style with a fork. There was no plates. It was just a fork off the wood board. And I said, how fun, like years ago, I thought about, I'm like, how fun would this be in the middle of a table of friends at a restaurant. Um, and yes, it's peasant food, but, you know, and, and no, I don't add mascarpone to my polenta. It's just <laughs> cornmeal finished with a touch of butter and and salt. And um, and then we put a really tasty ragu on top, and that changes, you know, regularly with whatever we got going on. So can you say simplicity is what you like That's to... That's the key. And people, of course, they love the presentation. Someone from the kitchen comes out and pours a sauce, and it's hot, and it smells amazing out of the pot, and it's great. But really, when you eat it, it's it, and you're sharing it amongst a table of th- two, three, or four people... And, uh, I mean, I always get slightly disappointed when someone orders it as their main course. I mean, of course I love people, but I mean, and it's plenty of food for that, but it's not how it's meant to be is everyone's fork on the wood sharing and then move on to the next course. That's how it's supposed to be like a tasting. Yeah. And it just like as, as a shared course, as you know, family style with a couple other things on the table, but Hey, you know, we're, we never get uppity about how people want to eat our food. I mean, you eat the way you want to eat, you know? We're going to jump around here. We're going to sure. keep it exciting here. Tell me, now that we're talking about Table 17 right now, I'm coming for my first time dining experience. Mm-hmm. What am I getting? It's really, um, I would say, you know, modern American bistro food. And, and not American in, like, in the sense – American in the sense of North America, not, you know – uh, obviously we, you know, we're, we, from day one, we've always been building relationships with great suppliers and farmers and importers. And, you know, yes, we do local food, but yes, we also import, like bring in a lot of excellent imported stuff. Um, you know, I've been a big supporter of, you know, slow food events and, and, uh, that way of thinking. So we've, we've, you know, we've, uh, um, nurtured great relationships with people and we're very proud of that, uh. But the sensibility of, of the food on the plate is, you know, very um, 
for the customer. We we do our best not to cook for ourselves and cook for our own ego. We like to put food on the plate that is going to eat well. I always ask my staff, I'm like, how's it? How's this going to eat? Who cares what it sounds like on the menu or what it looks like in presentation or if we use the latest sous vide technique? You know, we do all that kind of stuff too, which is, they're important tools. But really, what's the eating experience? You know, someone orders this with a certain expectation. Is it like a main course? Is it a shared app? Is it, you know, a side dish or, you know, like whatever, is it a massive shared portion of something that we do in the middle of the table? And then how does it eat? Is it balanced? Is it well seasoned? Is it, you know, how can we execute this perfectly within the limitations of our kitchen? So in that sense, it's modern food. Uh, Otherwise, it's really kind of, you know, a, a North American bistro fare. There are some French influences. There's a lot of Italian influence. It's, you know, definitely European-centered, but we're not shy of, free, of Asian flavors and, and uh, South American flavors when the time's right. Um, you know, the, we change the menu on a rotating basis every few weeks with different dishes coming on and off, depending on what's available, of course. And this is not revolutionary. It's what everyone who's worth their salt does in the business these days. Um, and it's the way you keep your cooks excited and interested. And more importantly, it's a way of keeping, you know, customers coming back and seeing new things. But they know that what they're going to get is of a certain style when they come in. You're the reason why we bring guys here, chefs, people <clears throat> here, because the passion, you're, you're clearly on the ball with seasonal ingredients and you keep it fresh and you talk about it like it's fresh. It's, it's depressing because a lot of restaurants in Toronto, there's so many of them, therefore a larger number of not great ones. And it's the same stale menus. Like there's a difference between going to a restaurant where you know they're going to do what they do right all the time mm-hmm. and a restaurant that's just still doing the same thing. I'm, all, yeah, I'm always cautious when, when the guy, when the girls and guys in the kitchen are like, I want to do this and I want to do this. I'm like, great. Now let's ask ourselves, do we want to do this because it's what's being done right now? like bone marrow and charcuterie and salumi, which I love all of these things. They're awesomely delicious. And but, it's accessible but to But are you. we doing it because it makes – yeah, and it's accessible. Are we doing it because it makes sense within our menu and is it filling a niche of, of balance? Uh, on Like when, when you go to a menu, people who eat fish and eat vegetables should have something to order. And and we're big believers in that. And sometimes our menus can get a little bit meat and pork heavy, but we always say to our servers, you know, Identify those people who are, you know, pescatarians or vegetarians and, and make sure that you allow them to speak up because, you know, you know we're always ready to do something for them. Um, and again, we bang into the heads of our cooks and our servers, of course, that the experience is customer driven. It's not chef driven. And biggest compliment to me is when someone uh, speaks to the quality of the ingredient on the plate, meaning you know, oh, that whatever was so fresh and or so good, and I haven't had any uh, an ingredient that ingredient that actually tasted like that before that tasted as the ingredient should, and that's the biggest compliment because it means you know we've moved out of the way, we've let the product stand for itself, and that's the hardest job of good cooks these days is is to you know uh, let the product shine. You know, we have access to awesome ingredients. And when you spend that kind of money and charge that come on that kind of money, frankly, for a dish, I think it's important that um, the customer sees that they're paying not just for, you know, a good environment and beautiful wine and, and great service uh, and, and creativity, they're paying for product. 
and I'm delivering on the product, right? And and if we've moved out of the way enough to execute something on the plate where the product shines through, then that makes me very happy. Guide me through a multiple course meal at table 17. Cool. So um, we have a little section on the menu that says leave it to us. Like, so you can, Amazing. You, you can order. I mean, and it's not a ta- – I would never call it a tasting menu. We like to do it as family style as possible. Sometimes we do individually plated dishes as a course because it just makes more sense. Um but really, we you know we say, what do you want to spend? Forty bucks, fifty bucks, sixty bucks. Wow. You know, it's it's not a hundred dollar tasting menu or That's anything. That's incredible. I mean, especially because you came from Splendido. Yeah, I came from. Yeah, I mean, and look, I love doing eight nine course taste. Who doesn't like tasting. eating eight, eating nine it? Courses. I love cooking it. I love charging for it. But New York's big on that too. <laughs> yeah, it was, certainly was. Times are changing. I think customers want that quality and they they want it more often and they don't just want it on the 20th anniversary where they're going to drop a thousand dollars on a dinner they want to be able to do it and and spend under a hundred bucks absolutely so or have the ability to walk in not thinking they're going to spend that amount of money and if the time and the and the right menu is in front of them last year we redesigned our menu at table 17 to really um uh cater to our normal regular neighborhood customers who want to come sit at the bar, have a steak frit, have a dish, have a glass of wine, have a quick, you know, thing and go home. But we also were cognizant of the fact that people come in and they want to blow their brains out sometimes. They want to have an awesome time. So I spent a number of months designing the menu to facilitate all of that. So we have, you know, three columns basically on the menu, kind of smaller stuff, medium sized stuff, and then really big format stuff. Um, So a, 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 Say a dinner for four people could mean like some fried artichokes and a couple salads and a, either ceviche or carpaccio of some sort on the table, followed by, um, you know, maybe a pasta or risotto course or something that we played individually for everyone. Or maybe it's like vegetables and polenta or and, uh, you know, it, it honestly depends on what time of year you come in. That's amazing. Uh, and then for like... The main portion, you know, we do a couple large format stuff. We do, you know, 24-ounce ribeyes with, you know, sauce and potatoes, basically. We're going to get to that. Yeah. I'm going to need a play-by-play on that ribeye. We do. Yeah. that That's pretty special. And Or we do, like, what we call the chacrut royale, which is, like, sausages and smoked pork loins and spatzle and cabbage and and jus and, you know, and we do whole fish. And we I love cooking whole fish. That's one thing I loved about working at Splendido. When at the time we had this awesome wood fired oven and we would cook whole fish and it was so fantastic. And it was hard to do in our menu because you gotta, you know, we're not Yosos. We can't charge 45, 50 bucks for a main course whole fish for an individual person, right? So this menu allowed me to say, hey, if you're a couple and you come in and you want like a salad and fish, you can get a great salad and then your second course be like a whole fish with great garnish and just beautifully cooked in this perfect prime pristine product and um it allowed us to offer some stuff that we weren't offering before so that's that's the exciting part i think about the way the, our menu format now take me through the 24 ounce ontario limousin beef <laughs> potato and fennel gratin with brown butter jus. so the so the uh the ribeye is from we get from a guy named neil at a company called ontario harvest and he has a bunch of farmer partners that that grow, I think he's branded as like uh, heritage beef, but it's the breed is a limousine beef, which is uh, 
originally from France, and it's a breed that is designed to store more fat. So the marbling's there. And it, it means it's a, it's a breed where they don't have to feed it a bunch of corn and grain. Therefore, it'll taste like corn and Yeah, grain. it's obviously pastured beef. It's finished on grains, but um, uh, grains that these guys grow. That's, a, that's different, though. Yeah, the it's, taste not, from the beef it's not a corn-finished USDA yeah. prime-style flavor. Um, and then, they, you know, they have a dry-aging program, and it's fantastic. And uh, it's been... It's been um, a product that we like a, a a product. It's been beef that we've been bringing in from this guy that's worked for us from for a long time, and uh, it, you know what? He is uh, the price point makes sense for us too. Like, and that's always important. It's not you know it's not as romantic as everyone seems. Or oh, you have this beautiful farmer. And, I mean, we dollars and cents matter to us, and we need to make money on what you we're have serving. To in Toronto. And we and we got to present value to our customer at a price point, and we think we we do with this. I mean, this is a great piece of meat. Are you butchering it in house? Yeah, we well, we get the whole ribeye in, and, yeah. and we and then we you know clean and portion them for ourselves. And they um, they uh, it's a piece of meat we've seen guys order by themselves. And, and I mean, you can do it. I mean, I, if I was in it, the right mood and hungry enough, I mean, I could do some damage. To this it's piece my of meat. cut of choice. Yeah, so I but, can. But, yeah, but absolutely. the real beauty of this is you could share it amongst right. three, or, three or four people at the end of a four course meal. And get two, three like spectacular slices of beef with with the you know the gratin. The, it's just really it's like good steakhouse kind of food. Really, it sounds like it. Yeah. It's kind of almost a little out of place when I was reading your menu. Yeah, and that makes me happy. I'm glad that it's like not as predictable as it, for what we it do. It threw yeah. me off guard in a great way. Yeah, because I'm looking at all this. I mean, you have yeah. oysters, you have your beef tartare, your leg of lamb, um, spaghetti, pickerel. Yeah. Uh, and your first courses are the carpaccio, um, yeah. foie gras saute, like stuff that I that seems like it would fit together. And then yeah. I got this 24-ounce ribeye at yeah. the very end, almost like your finale. Right. I as, am a ribeye guy. Yeah. I get ribeyes maybe once every few weeks to avoid right. gout. <laughs> and yeah. I pan sear them on high. That's kind of my go-to, saute and butter and, and garlic. I think most chefs will tell you that ribeye is one of their favorite cuts of meat. It, it, it's the perfect blend of fat and and tender meat. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's great. But, you know, we still serve, you know, strip loin, steak frit. Like, it's not on the menu, but if someone asks, we have it. We, you know, steak frit is one of those bistro dishes we've been doing from day one at Table 17. We always want to have available for our regulars. Um, like you said, you're, if they, <clears throat> these people are sitting at the bar. That's it. They're gonna want something yeah. as accessible as steak free, and not necessarily yeah. to put able to put down a twenty four ounce. No, exactly, and and that's good that you have that. I don't want to. I don't want to take up space in the menu with it. But interesting, our, our regulars know we have it. Our, our, when people ask, "Oh, don't you have your steak?" Free? Our staff always say, "Of course we do. It's not on the menu, but it's available." Um, and it's really just about like um, understanding that we're there to provide, a, you know, a neighborhood dining experience to our customers at the same time though we want to be a bit of a you know as much as we can be a good times destination table 17 located in riverdale or leslie riverside riverside whatever the 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 area they're calling it (laughs) these days 782 queen street east 416-519-1851 416-519-1851 for a reservation. Do you guys take reservations? Of course. And what days are you open? We're open seven nights a week. Amazing. Yeah, and brunch on Saturdays and Sundays. And how often are you there? 
I'm I'm there a lot. I mean, yeah, we also have I have we have another restaurant. Yeah, let's get to talking about that. Yeah, Ascari and Oteca is our um our uh, second child, one might say. And it's an Italian wine bar and pasta restaurant, basically. We, I mean, uh, I love making handmade pasta. Unfortunately, at Table 17, I mean, there's only so, so many spots on the menu for a pasta dish. And so we decided to do a wine bar that focused on, on pasta, fresh pasta, and uh, with the same approach. I mean, it's, it's not a specifically – it's not sorry. I shouldn't say it's not an exclusively Italian restaurant. The wines are not exclusively Italian, and the di- the dishes are are Italian. But you know, there's definitely stuff on the menu there you might not see on menus in Italy. Um, you know, again, it's you know we take product that we that we get from the same suppliers we get at Table Seventeen. We get a lot of nice, beautiful stuff from around here, and that obviously inspires dishes that aren't exactly traditional. We have a lot of straight up traditional stuff in the menu as well. Um, but uh, we like to play around a little bit too, and it's more. It sounds like a more casual experience. It is. It is. You know, there's no there's no tablecloths. There's. I mean, it's still uh, it's still great service, and actually the service style is very similar. But the room's definitely more casual. It's definitely uh, the price point. Obviously, is is a little a, t- a touch lower, and it's um, a place again for that. Uh, you can come and celebrate and have fun and do like a family style meal, but really, you know, you come on that rainy Thursday night when you're getting home from work and it took too long to get home and you don't want to cook and you know what? I just grab a pasta at the bar. Let's just have a nice poured glass of wine. <clears throat> and really, there we're we're most proud of the the wine list is really really special. It's really you know we focus a lot on natural wines. We focus on wines that have a lot of soul and um, you know again they're not exclusively Italian, but if you blind tasted them, you might misplace them as being from Italy. Like they're they're very uh, you know personality driven wines. They're old world style. Yeah. No. Yes. Yes. And no. I mean, there's definitely some some fruity modern tasting wines that we have on the menu, but uh, they all speak to speak to the the grape and the place and and the personality of the people making them. Well, it definitely sounds more of an Italian driven ideal it here. It is. It is. Tell me more about the wine. Tell me more about your favorites and yeah. why you wanted to open a wine bar. We we did. I mean, we Eric, my business partner, and I have always talked about, I mean, opening wine bar. He's had wine bar business plans like circling around his head for years, I know. And this particular one that's Formula One theme, we're both big F1 fans, Formula One theme. I, I love that. Yeah. I think I, that's incredible. And, and the, and, you know, Eric's always had this idea to open a bar, like a, a bar named after about Alberto Ascari. One might think it's me because I'm Italian. I mean, of course, I'm a big Ferrari fan, but, you know, Eric knew about this character for, for very long. He was a 1950s Formula One driver who was a total, like, like glutton he's just like a gourmand he would eat and drink and his nickname was chicho because and he means chubby in italian he was too fat to drive but he somehow still kicked everyone's ass and he was the best driver of his generation tragically died in an accident he was mega superstitious and and uh the one day he wasn't wearing his own goggles and gloves and helmet he flipped the car and, and died in a crash at the same age that his dad died in a crash it's it's i mean if you read about the story it's pretty phenomenal the guy was a character and and Milan like shut down the day of his funeral. It was like he was a legend, still is a legend in in, in the racing circles. And we get a lot of old 
guys. I can't wait to hear this. Who part. come in and they're like, I saw this car on the sign. I'm like, that's Ascari's car. And and then they come in and they're like, wow, how do you like young kids? And we're not that young, but young kids like know about it. And we and and they look at the memorabilia and the pictures on the wall and they and they tell us stories. And one really, really fantastic, uh, sweet uh, gentleman came in one day, and he brought us a whole bunch of like VHS tapes from of, from the era. And he worked in garages of Formula One teams in the fifties and sixties. And this guy brought us these tapes of these races of you know Sterling Moss and Ascari and all the greats of the time. And it's 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 actually been really great to. to get to know and connect with these people who who were or are in the racing world and they get a real kick out of coming and eating at our place. I was just going to say that you must get some authentic Italian gentlemen and, and women just coming in and pouring their hearts out to you because they don't have this outlet it's in, funny, it's, in it, we Toronto. do We do, but it's been more British. I mean, British people, I mean, uh, the, the British, old British guys in Toronto are, were all big racing fans when they grew up in England at the time. And so... Uh, We've had as many Italians as, as old Brits come in and make that connection with us and, and tell us their stories and, and tell us how cool it is to have a restaurant named Ascari in, in the city. And I mean, we think it's a lot of fun and we have a lot of fun with it. And uh, our staff get to know the story and love telling it. Thank and really, that. really, you know, we know from being in the business for a long time that the restaurant business uh, is really about telling stories and getting your customers to invest in what you do. And there's no better way to do that than to tell them about what's on the plate and why it's there, the story behind why we do what we do. You know, I talk about my family and parents a lot because, I mean, I'm close with them, but and, and they come down to the restaurant all the time. But it's it's also because that's what inspires us. You know, Eric's French-Canadian and spent time in England with racing cars and in restaurants in New York like I did. And we both have great to- stories to tell. And uh, we find that when we make real connections with customers like that, that's really what brings them back beyond the fact that hopefully they're eating a great meal and having great experience. We're going to get to the wine. I love that passion that's driven from a story that tells your story. There's nothing like it. The, the fulfillment you must have got when finally some people were coming up to you and talking to you about this race car driver. like no, it's, it's really cool. I mean, how, how cool is that? Because... You're thinking that, okay, this is your passion, this is a story you're basing this around on, but you never really know if it's going to work out. And right. And once you're successful and you right. get going, even still people may be into the food and think it's just an Italian name, it's an Italian restaurant, but the people who are these true fans, British, Italian, whoever they may be, that must be amazing for Oh, yeah, and I'll tell you, there's got to be thousands of people who've come through the restaurant and don't even know right. what it's about. They figure, I mean, they see race cars and the wall, they figure it's something about it, but... And maybe they couldn't care less. They're eating a nice bowl of pasta and they're having some nice arancini and they're drinking a really cool glass of wine. So they're happy and that's great. Uh, but for those, who, the, for those who want to know, we love connecting with them like that. Did you drink wine as a young teenager with your parents? Was it sure. accessible sure. early on? Is yes. that where you appreciated it on early on? Yes. I mean, I think my experience was typical of a lot of children of Italian immigrants in, in this city, in, in Toronto, Montreal, and in Canada, where um, our parents made wine. Oh, wow. And, and, and it was not good wine. Like, it was just table wine. I mean, I, I don't know any... I never went to anyone's house and had their p- parents wine and said... Wow, this is really good. It was just like, oh, great, a glass of red wine with dinner, and we drank it 
when we were kids and teenagers, we had a sip and like it was, you know, like most Europeans, I think, would identify that wine at the dinner table and was always offered and was never made a big deal of it. Of. And then as I got older and became, you know, interested in cooking and worked in restaurants, I started building a real love for really well-made wines and then realized, wow, we were drinking a lot of crap when we were kids. And it's funny because, I, you know, my brother and my dad now are totally into drinking excellent wines as well. Um, and, like, of course, the older you get, my dad doesn't make wine anymore and that. And he re- recognizes that what they made was probably not that great. But what was great about it was, you know, the the seasonal connection to the land. We'd buy the grapes, you press, you click, clink the, 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 you know, you crush and press in the basement, the cantina. And it was really about bringing the family together. My uncles would come over, my grandfather would come over and we'd make wine. And, you know, we do a lot of things in our in our house that mark the seasons like a lot of european immigrants do you know in fact unlike italians in italy do anymore when you go back there they think we're crazy that we still do these things you know they buy everything in stores like most people here do now too so i find it's really important to continue to do those things and yeah my connection to you know good wine definitely stems from the fact that you know, my parents were always drinking wine at the dinner table at lunch. There's never a meal really other than breakfast that goes without a glass of wine at the table. But um, fine wine appreciation definitely grew out of my, you know, time in restaurants where as a cook, I really was wanted to know the whole business. I didn't just want to know about what, what I was putting on the plate. I wanted to know about, you know, what we were serving with each course at the table and what could I know. I, I might have been the only line cook who was taking a sommelier class at 9 in the morning the next day, you know, once a week to learn as much as I could about it because for me, not only was I passionate about it, I loved the, the learning, the academic function of it as well and, you know, the history behind it and how, I mean, it's so intertwined with the business we do. If you don't know how to sell wine, you don't make money in this business. So um, for me, that was important. Talk to us about some of the wines you're featuring. We have some awesome producers that we've uh, that you know we're fortunate to uh, bring in both uh, from around the world and of course from Southern Ontario. Um, you know we've got great relationships with with wineries like. You know, Charles Baker at Stratus and Norman Hardy at Norman Hardy Wineries. And we bring in fantastic wines from Laley and Cave Spring. And uh, a lot of a lot of names you see on good restaurant lists in the city. And they're on those lists for a reason is because they make uh, excellent wines that are bringing uh, the Ontario wine scene, both in Niagara and Prince Edward County, um, onto the world stage. Especially in the past two, three years, our wines from this place that we live in have never enjoyed more acclaim than they have and and much deserve it deservedly so so you know we started we're really uh really happy to be pouring wines from pearl morissette escarianoteca as well uh we i mean these are wines that are made naturally with natural yeasts and really expressing really expressing um the place where they come from in in southern ontario with great personalities behind them as well and and that's the best part about it too is, you know, we get to unlike when you import a wine and you see a wine winemaker come once a year when they come on their road show and they may do a wine dinner with you or they might you know and it's great to connect with them in that way and then maybe even when you're traveling to visit their winery these are people we get to see every two three weeks here 
and build a real relationship and talk about, well, why are we doing it? Like, like what changed last year, this year's vintage, you know, like, why are you focusing on this rather than that? And, uh, and how is this year's weather affecting, you know, what we're pouring? And I mean, these are the things that we have direct access to. And there's only a few markets, I think, in North America that have that direct access to a winemaking region. Um, no, obviously, Northern California, Southern California have that kind of direct access. Maybe in in Oregon, but you know, even in New York City, we didn't we didn't have that kind of access to 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 winemakers on a weekly basis of you know of local winemakers coming in and directly dropping off cases of wine that they made uh to your restaurant. I think that's kind of unique to to Toronto. I want to get back uh to pasta talk sure. in a little bit. Sure. Let's just finish off with your third venture. Yes. Started last year. <clears throat> yeah. Almost a two years uh, or a year. We're, and a half we just had our first birthday last month. Okay, great. So this is the high low bar. Yeah, high low bar. Yeah. It's really I mean it's funny because when we open a new project and then for some, Eric and I kind of immediately always start batting around ideas about what we would love to do. And it's not about like, you know, necessarily about empire building or anything like that. It's more about what will we have fun doing? What is going to like make us happy to do and have some fun? And just a down and dirty rock and roll bar um, is what we were going for here. And we really wanted to create a neighborhood clubhouse. You know, we we actually really owe what we do at Hilo a lot to um, two very amazing people who opened a bar called the Avro in Riverside a number of years ago. And they were open for three years, and they clo- they their lease ended, and they had some landlord trouble, so they closed. And we saw the niche after they closed of like everyone, all our staff, and everyone in the neighborhood, uh, they kind of lost their clubhouse. And so when we saw a space open up. And uh, we saw an opportunity where, like, we really should open a place like that. And obviously, we do it with our own personality. But, you know, we hired Rachel from the Avro to do our branding at Hilo. So, you know, we it was a totally in the family and in the neighborhood project. And, you know, they own Handlebar now in Kensington Market. And we love that place. But uh, it was a, we just said we want to create a place where neighbors, neighborhood people, cool neighborhood people, Grown-ups, adults, kids all are going to go have fun. There's pinball machines. There's rock and roll. There's, Amazing. There's great cocktails. There's like really, really delicious cocktails made by Ali and Emily, our two awesome bartenders. And there's also fantastic um, you know, craft brews. And then you can also get 50 and PBR and Jameson and all those things that people – just want that are easy go-to choices. And it's really, you know, the success is really due to our managing partner there, Gavin Holmes, who works day in and day out to like throw awesome events and really create great programming at the bar that keep us relevant to the neighborhood and relevant to the community. And Toronto, Gavin's pretty popular when it comes to restaurants in the city. He, Gavin's, he is a popular gentleman. Yeah. yeah. Tell yeah. us about the food. At Hilo, at Hilo, uh, it's very limited. It's really a, a, just a fun bar menu. We do, cool. yeah, we do like you know, we have small little things like fried chickpeas and pickled quails eggs, little snacky stuff. Oh, that's like great. the business model doesn't allow for a kitchen no. at this place. It's so a bar. It's a bar where there's some prep that goes on during the day. I send a cook over there. We do some prep, and then the servers can really just execute it. That's awesome. You know, that's that's 
kind of very smart. Yeah, and and so well if, if you're out. hungry, you can have like a sausage roll, you know, or uh, you know. But that's a, what I want when I'm drinking. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You know, I'm not going pl- there to eat. You do as much olives, more. I'm going there to drink. Yeah, olives, nuts. Like I'm shocked at how many pickled quail's eggs we sell there. Actually, oh, the it's, pickled craze in Toronto is huge. <laughs> it's yeah, it's fun, and you know, and then we do pickles, and now it's great because we've got some pop up stuff happening. We've got a really fantastic guy. Uh, doing some pop-ups out of there named Dave Modershall, and he does Locust Snacks. And everyone should know what, who, what this guy's doing. And, and I mean, his food is delicious, and his vibe totally fits what we do at Hilo. So he comes in a couple times a week, takes over the kitchen, and rocks it out. And we're like, holy cow, we did so many, we did so much food sales last night. And, it, you know, it, it's a way for him to kind of build his brand and do his thing. And it, it, it like totally doubles up for us in terms of it, it's a perfect clientele base and brings more bodies into our space that may not, may not have checked us out before because they love Dave's food. So, uh, yeah, I mean, it, it's been a, Hilo's been a real awesome way for us as Eric and I and Gavin to like kind of reconnect with the neighborhood and the people who, you know, they're not coming to table 17 every three weeks, three, four weeks for dinner. It's not their vibe. It's not their thing. And, you know, you know, it, but they do four times a week come in and drink ciders and beers and, and, you know, have snacks and chat with their buds. And, and that's, we love creating a space for that to happen. Well, it sounds like you're slowly taking over Queen Street East. You know what? Embedding. I, I love, I love, rather say we am, we're embedding ourselves in Queen Street East. There's no, Queen Street East took us over. That's a better way to describe it. You know, we've been so well received by people in the neighborhood and we're so grateful to, to that neighborhood for the last seven years we've been doing business in there and Leslieville as well. So like Riverside and Leslieville that, uh, really they, they, they've like taken control over us. Like, we, like we're there doing our thing. You know, basically, uh, you know, at the at the service of them. This is what I'm proposing. This could be called the Never Sleeps Network Speaking Duck. Um, we'll call this a dish crawl. Yeah. You start at uh, I would say Ascari and Oteca. Sure. Then you make your way over to Table Seventeen yes. for a good main course. And then to high low bar to finish yes. off the night. This unfortunately is not an original idea. Oh, this has been it's this, too obvious. This has been not to be. My brother actually took his whole staff. They, like I think there was like fifteen or sixteen of them, uh, and they did this exact crawl, and we destroyed them in that order. In that order. Come on! Yeah, it was really fun. Uh, they had a great time. We really killed them with food and booze. It was really great. I don't know how much work they got done the next day at the office. Probably not much. Uh, but yeah, it's it, it's uh, you know we love being able to uh, provide different kinds of experiences, you know, because we're not like upscale people in that sense. Of course, you know we love to go out and eat at crazy restaurants, but we also love going out and grabbing a bowl of pho for lunch and and you know going and drinking beers, watching the hockey game, and eating wings. I mean, that's we're normal people. You are like, from Toronto, exactly. I am from Rexdale. Then let's yeah, not forget. It sounds like I it. climbed out from under the rock, but I do go back every weekend for lunch at my parents. House. Where, where are your parents? What part of Italy are they from? My dad is from Calabria. Uh, he grew up in a small town in the like the toe of the boot of Italy for a geography lesson. And my mom is from <laughs> uh, my mom is from Abruzzo, which is on the Adriatic coast across from Rome. 
uh, like on the other side so of like Rome. So like north and south. Uh, not my, you, you would never call Abruzzo north. It's still a very peasant kind of province. It's kind of ge- geographically in the middle of Italy. Sure, sure. Economically considered the north south. North of your dad. For sure. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, yeah, I mean, we're very, very fortunate. My mom and her family are amazing cooks and come from a really rich culinary tradition, as does my 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 the my grandmother my dad's side was a fantastic is a fantastic cook as well so i mean we're like most italian families just really spoiled with good food a lot of it grown in our backyard well connected to the source and the land i mean lots of italian immigrants here are hunters and they they understand where food comes from and you're bringing that tradition to the toronto scene yeah i mean highlighting it i would say i think i don't know about bringing it lots of people bring it lots of good chefs in the city bring that tradition and i mean we've talked about a few earlier lots of good people bring that tradition i like you know i highlight my experience i i really appreciate how humble you are i'm trying to just being very direct with my my sentence structure here and you're you're definitely uh picking up uh your own my nuances Look, of, of I'm trying a product to be, of yeah. this city and all all the yeah. other great people that come that come before you know like, very humble yeah so Hilo Bar that's seven five three Queen Street East yeah um, Ascari yeah. and Oteca eleven yeah. eleven Queen Street East oh, great between Pape and Jones let's talk about the pap the pasta yeah so. I grew up and my mom, my mom is not the person, like my mom had a job. So she wasn't making fresh pasta every night. But when, you know, people came over, we had a special occasion, she would make fresh pasta. And we we just, we loved it. It's just such a special, luxurious thing. It's not really an everyday eating thing. Like everyone's like, oh, I don't eat pasta at restaurants. I can make my own pasta at home. And to be honest, I, I don't. I don't disagree with that. Uh, I think there's lots of restaurants in the city that serve like dry pasta out of a box where it's okay, but I find it troubling to spend, you know, 15, 16, $17 on a bowl of pasta that they boiled out of a box. I, I get that. So the experience we, we want to, you know, we, we, we do our best to, to provide a Scariano Teca is that more luxurious like experience of that silky tender texture of handmade pasta. And we do it in various forms and textures and different degrees of uh, d- different vari- variations of different kinds of flour, depending on what we're trying to do uh, with the dish. And we try to make really deep layered flavors, inventive pastas that are not like crazy conceptually. Like beet and, and spinach yeah. and yeah, wheat. Sure. And- yeah, we use stuff like that. But, you know, really, it's got to taste like home cooking, like home, like comforting food. But we want to kind of wow you with the layers of sophistication in that dish and and the the depth of flavor that go that goes into it, and of course the quality of ingredient, right? So um, tell us about some of the choice right. pasta dishes. So there's one dish that never leaves the menu, and that's the very simple spaghetti alla guitarra, and that's basically our take on spaghetti and tomato sauce. So the uh, pasta cut on guitar strings is very famous for where my mom comes from in Abruzzo where it's literally like a wood contraption with guitar with strings tightened on it and you throw your sheet of pasta and you roll a rolling pin over and it cuts it in this perfect you know spaghetti what makes it special is that by not throwing it through a machine cutter you're not working the dough as much and it results in a more tender kind of springy um, uh, pasta that has a really awesome kind of bouncy texture to it and the tomato sauce is the tomato sauce that comes what from my mom's hometown basically it's the tomato sauce my my grandmother made 
when you go to my mom's hometown, you can have this dish in one of the two restaurants that exist there because it's only like a thousand people that live there now. Maybe a couple, a couple more than that. But there's a couple restaurants, and when they serve this dish, they actually serve it's this tomato sauce with, but with fresh crayfish from the Pescada River right beside. That sounds really which, good. Which, when I went there and I ate it, I was like, wow, I can't obviously put the crayfish because we don't get that here, but it's really, really good. So that's the simple spaghetti and tomato sauce that we serve. And it's the, it's what you would eat at my mom's house on a Sunday afternoon, basically. Um, and then it then it ranges through, like, you know, seasonal stuff. You know, in the summer we were doing, uh, you know, lavender braised rabbit and agnolotti with a nice broth and, spring ve- and summer vegetables. Now we've got, like, a buckwheat pasta ravioli with braised pork and dandelion and parsnip puree and pickle mustard seeds. You know, we do um, a, a bunch of specials. One one that I'm – one of my favorites that I love having on the menu, we ha- we just put it on now. It's a verbal special, but it's uh, a chicken liver pasta. And I know people don't love – not everyone loves liver, but this is a, a dish I had at a winery in northern Italy. And we actually serve this winery's wine, Castello di Verduno, on our list. And I had this for lunch there, and I had to go back and see who made this dish. And of course, it was two old grandmothers who were making lunch. <laughs> it was unbelievable. It's you know chicken livers with sage and a little bit of sweet wine and a touch of cream and a touch of butter, and it's so simple, but it's super rich and and delicious. And uh, it it just it just goes perfectly with with the wine. And so when we got this wine on the list, I'm like, I'm making the pasta. That's incredible. What are the ch- that's a great connection that only someone that is as versed as you are can necessarily make yeah i mean and, and i i just love it and i think and it's one of those things when we when we verbal special like our customers know they're like is the chicken liver pasta on the menu because wow. i want it and and uh, the staff love it and they sell it and i've never seen i don't see too many dishes like that when i go out to eat i mean and when i do i get super excited so i i you have to have more approachable things on the menu of course and we do Pardon me, but that's that's kind of what we, uh, you know, the, those few accents in the menu. That's the kind of authentic experience we want to provide. What are some tips for making ideal pasta? Um, for us, the what I think keeps our noodle, our noodles, really great in terms of just the raw material, the noodle, is that we don't do it in a mixer. Like we 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 do every kilo of pasta on a tabletop in a well by hand with a fork. How many kilos a day you think? Uh, we do probably 40 to 50 kilos a week. Wow. So, um, yeah, we probably sell, you know, seven to 10 kilos a day of pasta, I would say, um, uh, in varying forms and shapes and sizes. Uh, and the reason we do it by hand is because you, the feel, when the dough comes together is when you need to stop working it. Otherwise the pasta can get tough and you know, you don't have as much control when you're in a mixer. Um, the other thing too is when you do it by hand, whether it's the summer or the winter, you know, conditions change. It's really humid in the summer. You probably need a little less liquid. You might need like one less egg yolk in August when it's like 40 degrees and humid than you do when it's minus 20 and dry outside. And the ambient conditions outside affect it like, you know, everyone knows when it's the winter, you need to turn your humidifier on because your apartment gets dry. It's the same when you're cooking, you have to take these things into account. So you're making pasta and you're like, okay, it's winter. Like this is not coming together as well. We need to throw another egg. If you're doing a, like 10 kilos at a time in a mixer, you can't react to your environment as well. So my guys who do, like I have two guys who do the pasta production 
and they uh, they know they understand and anyone new coming in who learns it you know they understand that it's it's about being dynamic and cooking with your brain and not with a recipe and and knowing that what the end result's supposed to look like and then understanding how you get from point A to point B I love that explanation it makes so much sense this to a home cook if I'm working off a recipe, I well, won't... this is why grandmothers don't work right. from recipe. Everyone complains. My grandmother didn't have a recipe. She just did this and that. <laughs> sure, because she did it so many times. Cooking's like cooking is repetition. If anyone tells you otherwise, they're dumb. Cooking is repetition. Good cooks have done it, done what they do feel. a, a thousand feel. times. So then you eventually begin to be able to intuit the behavior of the product, right? Um, and that's why. Younger cooks need to understand that apprenticeship and learning the craft is a long lifetime process and you, working under good people continually is how people understand, you know, and become into Like I've seen it. I've seen cooks who work for me who got years of experience and they come work for me and they're on the verge and all of a sudden like over a couple of years things just start to click and their skills just like take off. And it's not because, you know, they were – talented which you know of course talent's a weird word in cooking i think but it's because you know they bared down and they did it over and over and over and over and then it comes to a point where you just it's like playing a guitar or piano you don't have to think about what you're doing anymore you can focus on what you want the end result to be and your mind your body your knowledge will take you there let's carry that thought about working under great people Mm. talk to me about working at craft in new york Mm -hmm. under tom colicchio Right. Uh, well, it, to be honest, uh, yeah, of, of course, I worked under Tom. I worked for Tom. Tom's was a fantastic guy. He's a great mentor to a lot of people. And he's built a very admirable restaurant empire. He's the most non-rock star, rock star. You got it. You non-pretentious got it. You chef got it. in yeah. America. Yeah. So for, working under Tom was – I mean, literally, I learned to cook under Marco, though. So Marco Canora was the chef de cuisine at the time. Marco was the day-to-day Chef, he ran the kitchen with a number of extremely talented and and well experienced sous chefs. The team there was really incredible. Tell us a bit about Kraft. So, yeah, so Tom, Tom, but Tom's vision was, guys, let's bring an amazing product, let's write the menu daily, and let's serve it like um, steakhouse style. Everything separate, compartmentalized, and then the customer just puts together the meal on the table, the ingredients they want, and we're just gonna like do as little of the food as possible. Other than like cook it, right? And, and really, that was the brilliant side. But we got to see the most incredible ingredients, the most incredible product, and learn how to cook each one to to bring it to its potential without worrying about the overall composed vision of a plate. In that sense, it's the perfect learning ground for a young cook who's coming in and not worrying about every time where does this leaf on the plate have to go and and you know does my sauce swoosh end up perfect on the plate really what you're worrying about there is did i get that skin on that fish crispy and is that temperature or that piece of meat spot on like we wanted and you know did is the potato puree i made Perfectly silky with the right amount of potato flavor, not too much dairy so I don't drown out the potato and I didn't cook it in the water too long so it didn't get waterlogged. I mean really it was about making the product shine and like there I learned that polenta can actually taste like corn. Right. You know, we, we got freshly ground cornmeal from Anson Mills in like North Carolina, North Carolina, South Carolina, I forget now but unbelievable product. 
And I'm like, holy shit, this polenta tastes like cornmeal. Like corn, it's fantastic. Because we didn't drown it in butter and we didn't drown it in in cream and whatever. And it was really not heavy-handed food. It was really food that respected the producer and the product as much as the cooks cooking it. And so in that sense, it was the perfect place to learn. I'd worked at a great restaurant before, two great restaurants in New York before I landed at Kraft. I worked at a place called Roan Wine Bar, which was one other place I learned a love of wine. It was they only serve wines from the Rhone Valley. If you can imagine, imagine a wine bar in Toronto that only serves wines from one Wouldn't exist. region. Like, it's impossible. But of course, in New York, you can do that. And then I worked at La Caravelle, which is a really beautiful, old, classic French restaurant, which doesn't exist anymore. It kind of had its its uh, day, in the, <laughs> day in the sunshine. But it was it was an amazing experience. But when I landed at Kraft, really, uh, that's where I kind of get got my chops. And under, like, Marco's... Uh, you know, leadership and kind of like really approach, you know, he was a dollars and cents chef that, which was great too. I mean, he understood that this business is about making money and controlling food costs and labor costs. And Tom was very much as well. But, you know, when Tom came down to the kitchen, there was always, I mean, he's like just a really genuinely warm hearted guy. And And he he seems like it. He'd come in and just like the mood was great. No one was ever like scared when Tom came down in the kitchen. Yeah. We Nor were all like, oh, be. cool. Like Tom, like, you know, it's not like this like overbearing, like oh, I love angry. That. You know, he was so, he's like, he's really, really, it's really relaxed in that way, right? Um, and there's one story. If we it makes time, for better food. It makes for better yeah, food. There's one story I'd love to relay. And I tell my cooks this, this story and where Marco was away. So Tom was on the pass. And honestly, when Tom ran the pass, we were scared just because he didn't run the pass very often. So it, things, his style was very different. And no one was used to it. And, and it kind of got out of hand on a busy night. We had it was a lot of adapting going on. Uh, but at the same time, you know, I I was cooking fish at the time and that was the good thing there. Like you, it wasn't like you didn't cook grill or pans or sauce. You cooked fish, or you cooked vegetables, or you cooked starch, or you cooked meat. Like those were the stations. The stations were delineated by ingredient, not by um, like uh, hierarchy. Say in the in the kitchen, like a, like a standard French like garde entremetier sauce. Like it wasn't like that. Um, so I was cooking fish, and Tom saw I had this massive, massive. Alaskan wild king salmon like this the the width of the side must have been like close to 18 inches so if I'm going to cut our normal like chunk square fillet out of this for for the menu I'm like this thing's going to be like four inches by four inch. like it's it's ginormous and I said to Tom like if I if we get like a medium an order for a medium salmon I said it's going to take 20 minutes to cook this thing like it's crazy right and fish pickups got to be like under 10 minutes so he looks at it and he's like, well, go get me like your biggest knife. And I go get it. He's like, that's it. I'm like, obviously I didn't have a big enough knife for him. But, <laughs> and he just, he's like, instead of trying to make like, and trying to uh, force a product into the paradigm we were used to, he decided we're going to let the the product dictate how we're going to cook it. So he cut these incredibly thin cross sections, like, quarter inch thin cross sections of fish i mean if, if it was a steak it would have been like a minute steak so these were like eight ounce portions of fish but they were like 18 inches long and four inches like wide. it was just like a flat cross section of of the fish of, of of the filet and he's like we're just gonna cook it really slow bottom up 
The top's going to be medium rare. Imagine you cut a medium rare piece of fish in half and it's like got that glossy medium rare in the middle. It's like the top's going to look like that and you're just going to cook it up and and we're going to we're going to put it in like the largest like plate we got so it fits. And as soon as one of these things walked through the dining room, I swear to God, everyone was ordering it. And I just looked at myself like this guy understand like this is the genius of what people in Tom's position do is, you know, they don't force things on product or cooks or whatever. They let that just happen and they let, you know, they're, they've pushed their vision and ego aside and they say, you know, how are we going to make this fish taste the best, basically? And that's what he did. That is an amazing story. Tom, to me, seems like a cool, normal guy who just happens to have this kind of expertise that very few people have in North America. Yeah, he is. But, I mean, I, I wouldn't – he's got – I mean, you know, he made it happen. He he worked hard. He's got a ton of ambition. He had a huge vision for what he wanted his company to be. Uh, and you're seeing that, you know. You're seeing that. And uh, he's always been like a kind of like whatever to – like, I'm, of course, I'm sure he appreciates all the – you know, uh, all the acclaim he got. But we never got the sense working there. And I only worked there like just under two years, but we never got the sense that he was working for the acclaim. He was working to build a kind of restaurant that he wanted to eat in and that he wanted to, you know, to showcase. And it just happened to be kind of a revolutionary style of, of eating at the time. He's a celebrity because of his food. He's not a chef celebrity because of his, it's so hard to to. No, it's to not image. It's not image him. driven. It's not an, that's what I'm just not saying. Im- you're right. It, 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 he's not one of these like celebrity chefs who are personality driven. He's just you know he's just good at what he does. And he's a mellow dude. No connection. <laughs> yeah, but uh, to that statement, but um, he's an activist of sorts. He's very pro THC legalization in America. Right. I mean, most foodies he's also, he's, would he, be able to connect to themselves yeah, to that quite easily. Yeah, but that's it's definitely more... Tom. He's also, I mean, I, I take my lead from him in a lot of ways. He's also a very big uh, activist in terms of, you know, getting rid of GMO foods, getting getting rid of pesticides, um, you know, taking up the mantle of like a slow food kind of, of approach. And I mean, we always had the farmers walk right in the back door of the restaurant and bring in the stuff. And I mean, he is all, and he's also about um, good food ethics. He's not just about providing the rich people with great farm driven food. He's about uh, bringing that quality and healthy food, more importantly, to those less fortunate in, in the United States. And if we think that our food systems create disparate uh, classes, you know, situations in Canada, you know, take a trip to inner city U.S. and you're going to get a real picture of a place where people have very few healthy, good food options. And, you know, in that sense, I'm proud to say I worked for the guy because, I mean, look at what he does. Um, he takes people head on. He doesn't have to do that. That doesn't make him any extra money. He spends a lot of his free time doing that. And, and you know, I, I like to think that I spend as much time as I can, can on that kind of stuff too in the city. And I, I like to do my best to promote that. We can always do more, but you know, I try to share it with my chef colleagues and other places. I definitely share it with my staff. We know my staff know where 
Eric and I stand on on those issues and and where uh, where we source our food and how we like to support you know high school and community gardens and and uh, and and good food education for young people, especially those who don't normally have access to that kind of stuff. And you know I'm very fortunate. I grew up unknowingly that it was unique, but in, in a house where we ate salad and vegetables from the backyard every day. And in the winter, my mom just froze it all, and we had we ate, you know, Swiss chard and kale from the backyard. And that that it, as I grew up, I realized how not normal that is, especially for kids who grew up with parents who are struggling to make it happen, and and where every penny counts, and they're looking at their dollars and cents, and like, oh well, if I buy this, it'll take less time, and I'll be able to, you know, get something on the table. Um, and then these kids grew up, unfortunately, with terrible eating habits, and it affects the way they learn and the way they grow and the way they, the way their, you know, their disposition towards food and learning. And and it's a it's something we need to to really work on in 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 this country. And I think that uh, as a food frontliner, I'm someone who buys produce and then sells a converted version of that produce to people. Um, it's, it's our responsibility to, to tell the story of, of how we need to make changes to improve it. You ever go back to craft to your roots and talk to Tom? Or, or Marco? I, I know I don't talk to Tom. <laughs> I don't, I'm not like friends with Tom, but we, but if I were to see him, I, I would hope he would remember me. I mean, I worked there like 12 years ago, but I think, uh, I do keep in touch through various channels with, with, um, people I work with there. I'm still good friends. I'm fortunate to say with a number of people I worked with the craft we had an amazing team of people there and I'm proud to say that a lot of my co-chefs and sous chefs have gone on to do very very noteworthy things in the food business in North America and um, I'm not going to name drop but but it's it's just it's it's very rewarding to see that when we thought we were working with great people and you fast forward 10, 10 years and you're like, yeah, we really were working with really great people. And, and um, you know, I'm, I try to hold on to friends, good friends that I work with. When you like, it's the analogy of going to war during service is not that far off when in places like that where, you know, you're working 12, 14 hours a day with people five, six days a week and you're building lifelong relationships with those people and it's a sh- it would be a shame to let them go. It must be nice to host them when they come to Toronto. It is. It's awesome. It's really great and and uh, I love I love having friends of mine from the business whether it be from Montreal or, or New York or wherever come into the city and to say please come let me let me take care of you because they're always very generous. We're all in in this business we are all very generous in that way. So if you remember before you came on, we're going to be finishing up here in just a bit. I told you I'm going to put together a couple cuts. Oh, right. Of course. Of uh, cured meats yes. that I'm going to quiz you on. I forgot to study. I know. Hopefully I'm ready. So I'm going to go straight into it. This is a little game show we're, we're calling uh, Name This Cut. I just came up with that now, as you can tell. Well done. Um, so we're going to go through just three charcuterie items, three cured meats. Okay. And I'm going to start off the top. They're Italian. I'm, I'm gonna, oh, okay. okay. That helps. You're going to tell by the name anyway. <laughs> I'm going to make sure. I'm, I'm keeping it in your wheelhouse. And what am I going to tell you when you tell me You're going to tell me what you can, first of all. Okay. You're going to tell me um, where it comes from, maybe how it's cured. Okay. And I mean where, like where on the animal. Gotcha. Okay? First one. 
and I'm going to do my best Italian for each one. Very good. Coppa. Coppa, okay. Coppa is uh it's a cure it, it's a cured uh pork product that it usually comes from the the neck top of the shoulder area and uh, what makes it great it, it, it's actually my favorite uh is that the neck muscle there is very well used and so the striations and the meat like add a ton of flavor and it's not a salami in the sense it's not ground you you cure the whole muscle in one large intest like i think you use like the large intestine of a cow to to do it um and uh and it's just a really beautiful, like salt and then air cured piece of salumi, and uh, so it's not a ground up salami in the sense, uh, but it's a salumi in the sense that it's a cured meat, and it's it's the the neck and top of the shoulder. Uh, some people call it capicolo, and it, it really depends where in Italy you come from and what part of the neck and shoulder you use. Of course, there's you go to Italy and they'll tell you the guy in the next town is in Italy. He doesn't do it the right way, and it's so it, it, everyone's got their own way, but. Culpa's my favorite. You nailed it. First of all, I didn't know it was your favorite. That was too easy. But I've got, <laughs> we're moving. We're moving forward yeah. because I think this is going to get a little bit uh, harder. Good. And you are absolutely correct. Like I have no, I have no correction for you whatsoever. Not like I would, but there you go. Next one, Culatello. Culatello, also one of my favorites. So Culatello. I figured they're all going to be your. Yeah, Culatello. The translation of the word is kind of like baby butt. It's like it's like culo means ass in Italian. So it's like Culatello is a diminutive. So it's Culatello is like baby butt, and really, it, it comes from the inside of the back leg of the pig that you would make, like of the in the prosciutto, right? So you take literally the best muscle out of the prosciutto, and then you hang it in um, in the in the bladder. So the bladder is like a nice round like pouch, and it's from usually the Emilia Romagna region, like the and in, in the Po River Valley. And the idea is that the the mist and fog in from Emilia Romagna add that extra you know character to the cure. So when you hang a meat like that, like it's salt cured and hung like a prosciutto, basically, except you do it in the bladder lining, and then the the mold that grows on the outside in Italian we call it muffa. It's not such a negative word in Italian muffa as it is in English the mold. But that basically the bacteria that grows on the outside draws moisture out of the meat and helps cure it. But in the Po River Valley, it's got a special mufa because it's like the valley and there's mist and, and it. The, it's really a great – the high humidity is really great for curing that kind of meat. And it is a really spectacular slice of cured meat. If you like prosciutto, you've got to eat culatello. Amazing. These answers are incredible. I'm so glad. The passion that comes out of you, John – I hope this one is a little bit of a a little bit of a turn. Maybe, okay. maybe. I, I hopefully I can throw you off just a bit. So the last one. You're two for two for so far. Okay, good. Guanciale. Good. So guanciale is the cheek. Guancia means cheek in Italian. So, and uh, this is like the best. I mean, people who like bacon, you need to be eating guanciale. There's a reason why this is the last one. Yeah. So selected by me. So nor, typically, uh, people cure guanciale like they would cure pancetta. Uh, it's a much smaller muscle. You don't have to roll it or have it in like a huge slab. Depends on Depending on the pig, I mean, it can be anywhere from like six inches in diameter to eight or ten inches. It's like a teardrop shape. And uh, I cook a lot with guanciale. Uh, it's really great. It's really famous around Rome because it's what you make like carbonara with, right? You're not supposed to make carbonara with, with the belly. It's supposed to be with the guancia. Uh, and the the 
the flavor is derived from the fact that it's the most used muscle on the animal. The cheek and the, the jaw movement is what makes this such a special cut of meat. Um, and I've, I've even just like roasted the, like the raw, like you take the raw cheek and then you like render the meat and you like braise it. And it's, it's unbelievable. Um, yeah, we use it in a couple ways. I use it, uh, I use it at Ascari a lot. We use it for our Brussels sprout dish. We do like a, basically like a wilted Brussels sprout salad, like a warm Brussels sprout salad. And we, we wilt the Brussels sprouts in guanciale fat. And then we use like the rendered guanciale to spike the dish with, with a little bit of red wine vinegar to cut the fat. It's really, that sounds amazing. It's really tasty. It's one of our classic dishes at Ascari. It's a signature dish we do there. And then, um, but for that, I actually used a smoked jowl. So it's, it's not a, a totally cured down. The problem with guanciale is when you cure it down, get, it's like pancetta. It's kind of hard and really salty. So it, uh, it allows us it, the, to get a little bit more of a spongy texture and that smoky kind of bacon, uh, thing going on. But then, of course, I love just guanciale as a sliced cured meat on the board. Like the cure, like the real old school salt and air dry salt cure of the guancha and then you slice it and just like the fat and the layers and there's just that little little literally like dot dots of pink meat and the rest is just fat and it's it's so good john <laughs> you need to come back and we're just you need to do a cured meat conversation yeah, that would be with amazing you and some friends yeah with some wine that would and be some great meats. we're yeah. gonna do it no no no. it's gonna yeah. happen you should you should come and record me and my friends making salami in we'll the winter do it. we'll <laughs> my, do it me and the boys get together my friend's basement we make salami every year and and it's a blast invitation I mean. accepted <laughs> well done. I, just, I have to apologize <laughs> to my viewers because john is so passionate he has been talking with his hands consistently since he walked in he's a true, true. italian we're gonna this have to true. film him next true. time and again I'm glad there's nothing tall on the table in front of me to knock over. <laughs> we get a lot of table pounders. We right. get a lot of people, but I appreciate the uh, above table yes. expression. Yes. And I, and I also apologize to our listeners uh, because as a host and as an Italian person, we're, we're, we're almost talking over each other just because we're so excited about everything Look, that we're talking it, about. It's so normal where I come from. There's no conversation that doesn't take place with people yelling over. And it's funny. If you bring – non-Italians to our house. People think everyone's mad and yelling at each other. No one's mad. It's just the way we are. Passion. <laughs> and if you want to see some of this passion. It's vol- It's more vo- lack of volume control too, not just passion, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to see this lack of control and volume yes. and passion, visit John Sinopoli at three of his amazing venues, his amazing restaurants <laughs> and bars, Table 17, Ascari Anoteca, and High Low Bar. I want to thank you so much, John, for joining me today. Really great being here. It was a lot of fun. I'm glad. And we're going to do some salami uh, creation and, and curing in the near future. Yes. Thank you, John. This has been another episode of Speaking Duck. Take care, everybody. Never Sleeps Network. This has been a Never Sleeps Network production, executive produced by Alex Ross. For more information and content, visit NeverSleepsNetwork.com. Never Sleeps Network.